Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 4,000 years ago, Abram sat on a hill not far from Jerusalem and butchered half a dozen animals with his knife. Their blood poured out onto the ground as he sliced them neatly into right half and left half. Then he laid the pieces out like mirrored opposites, creating a pathway between the, the, uh, the bodies. As the sun set, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared from God and passed between the pieces. Abram would have understood this ancient custom as the establishment of a covenant. God had come to seal a covenant with Abraham and his descendants forever. I will be your God and you will be my people. Later the Lord would deliver a set of laws based on love for God and love for neighbor. But his covenant people found their lives were a constant battle with sin. And so God instituted the sacrificial system, whereby people could offer an unblemished animal to God whose shed blood would atone for their sin. <clears throat> the animals were slaughtered or sacrificed by the priests in order to express thanks or express repentance. Through the blood of the sacrifice, the covenant was preserved. All over the world tomorrow night, Jews will gather for the Seder, the remembrance meal of the Passover. It's a time to commemorate and retell the story of the final plague during the time of captivity, the time the angel of death passed over the homes of the Hebrews marked with blood of the lamb while killing the firstborn in Egyptian homes and their herds. In the midst of this same Seder meal, Jesus introduced a new covenant, one that would not only reestablish peace between God and man, but would provide a way to put our old lives behind us uh, to be born again, recreated to live new lives. But the cost of this covenant would come at a great price. Not the shed blood of animals, but the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. Since then, this meal has gone by uh, several names, some biblical, some not. Uh, it's been called the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Sacrament of the Altar, the Lord's Table, and the Breaking of Bread. But what exactly is it? What is it about this mysterious meal that it can accomplish so much? I mean, if I invited you over to my house for supper and all you got was a little piece of flat bread and barely enough wine to wash it down, you wouldn't go home very satisfied, would you? In spite of the sparkling conversation you enjoyed and all the money I'd saved. This meal we celebrate tonight is different. And it's a good time to take a look at the question because even longtime Lutherans get a little fuzzy on it sometimes. So tonight we're going to take a look at what God's Word says about it, and in addition, uh, a little more uh, drawn from Martin Luther's uh, insights as well. Now, in order to understand this very unique meal we'll be sharing, it's helpful to see it in the context of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In the first century church, the Lord's Supper was celebrated as part of an actual meal that believers ate when they came together, a meal to satisfy that ordinary stomach-growling hunger. Uh, some of the bread from that meal, along with some of the wine, would be set aside at some point uh, to be used to celebrate the sacrament. These communal meals were sort of like potlucks, with everyone bringing whatever they could afford to supply. The, the original point being that everyone shared so that everyone fared, but that's not how it was working out in Corinth. Like every community, some people there were better off financially than others, and they had resources, therefore, to bring better food to the meal. Less off people brought what they could, but it was a more commonplace cuisine. Some people couldn't bring anything at all, which was fine in concept, but not in practice. What was happening was that cliques were forming. 
Um, can you imagine cliques or divisions existing in a church? I know, as hard as, that's as hard to swallow as a bad plot of a direct-to-streaming movie, right? But that's what was happening. These meals were uh, generally held under the radar in larger homes of some of the more well-to-do believers. They may have had a small dining room off to the side where guests could recline to eat, but it wouldn't uh, been, you know, big enough to accommodate all the people that, that this would have involved. And so maybe a chosen dozen or so would, would get the good seats and subsequently the best food as well. After all, they probably brought it. Well, everyone else had to find a space where they could and, and eat whatever was left, maybe in the atriums. But not very Christian, maybe, but, but totally human, right? And this is what Paul addresses first. He says, For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry and another becomes drunk. Well, the whole point of coming together for a sacramental meal, or the agape meal, as it was called, um, was being missed before they even got to the sacrament. Don't you have homes to eat and drink your private meals in, Paul writes? You're there to come together as the body of Christ. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Share with one another. If you can't even do that, if you can't overcome differences and offer acceptance and forgiveness to one another, you'll never be properly prepared to take the Lord's Supper. How could they ever expect to receive the forgiveness and acceptance offered by God in the sacrament of Holy Communion if they weren't ready to accept and forgive each other and be the, that, that one body in Christ that believers are called to be? Paul calls their behavior an affront to God, and he reminds them of the importance of this gift Jesus left with us the night he instituted it with his disciples in, in the upper room the night they celebrated the Passover together for the very last time. And so Paul repeats his original instructions to them, just as they received it, he received it from our Lord himself. It was important to, for them to get it right because it was the most important meal they'd ever eat. It was a new covenant that would reestablish peace between God and his people for all time without the ongoing sacrificial system. It was a free gift that would be bought with a great price, not the shed blood of animals, uh, not this time, but with the, the lamb's blood, all theirs, those, those previous ones had foreshadowed. The once and for all time sacrifice of Jesus, the lamb of God. Now, communion is a meal, but it's not a meal for the bellies. The Corinthians had forgotten that. Uh, rather, it was and still is. It's a very special meal. As Luther calls it, a meal for the soul. The Passover Seder, on the other hand, was a commemorative meal commanded by God so that his people would never forget what he did for them in Egypt. But that was all it was, a memorial meal, ultimately meant to help people recognize and understand the significance of this new meal Jesus would institute when he came, the one in which we remember what God did for us in Christ on the cross at the empty tomb. When John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, it was so people would realize that he was the fulfillment of the Passover meal, that what it foreshadowed. So. We do remember Jesus' perfect life. We do remember his suffering and death on the cross for us and his resurrection from the dead on Easter morning. Every time we celebrate the sacrament. But we do more than just remember because communion is so much more than just a reminder of the past. It's his presence for today. It's his uh, promise for the, for the future. And as Paul's trying to get across to the, to the Corinthians, it's a holy sacramental meal. It does something. One consecrated in God's own word. The sacrament is, is uh, defined as a ceremony instituted and commanded by God that combines an earthly element with his word that brings us new life through the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of our faith. 
like water combined with Christ's words in the, in the sacrament of holy baptism. Those words are pulled right out of Matthew 28, where Jesus commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we, we apply water while speaking Jesus' words, and what happens? A new life in Christ is created. Sins are forgiven. In this holy meal, the words of Jesus are combined with ordinary bread and wine, just as he instructed. So, and so become a sacramental meal when the pastor consecrates the elements. And when they were, are received, we receive just what Jesus promised. It's the words of Christ that make this meal holy, not the bread, not the wine, and certainly not the pastor. Luther says in his large catechism that the word of God is the true and holy thing above all holy things. Indeed, it is the only one we Christians acknowledge and have. God's word is a treasure that sanctifies all things. Sanctifies means to make holy. That's what makes communion a meal of forgiveness. The Lord's Supper is a meal in which God serves up the fruit of Jesus' own sacrifice for us, the forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes. And we can be assured that when we walk away from this meal, we walk away forgiven because the Lord himself tells us that. That means we can rightly say it's a meal especially for sinners too, for those sorrowing and struggling over their faults and failings before God. Now we've been talking this whole Lenten season about the signs and wonders of the passion, about the three hours of darkness that covered the whole land while Jesus hung on the cross that Good Friday, about the temple curtain tearing, the earthquake, the the uh, splitting of the rocks, the opening of graves, the miraculous faith of the Roman soldier who was there to see and hear it all. The miraculous and, and Holy Communion is similar, but it's different. It's a mystery as much as it is a miracle. How bread and wine can also be the body and blood of our Lord is really beyond us to understand. It's like trying to understand how, how, how babies or young children could ever have faith in Jesus. And yet he said himself, when people were bringing little children to him to, to have him bless them, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. And the word used for little here is a mikros. It's a, the tiniest little, we get our word micrometer from it. Tiny little things. We're talking about very young children, babies. And, and so we baptize them. Because one, he tells us to baptize all nations uh, from a Greek word that means all people. And two, that baptism offers faith and forgiveness. And we're told by Paul that everybody needs both. Now, denominational differences exist in both sacraments. Everybody doesn't agree on just what happens in communion or how. Um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus. They, they still look like bread and wine, but they're not anymore. Our understanding is that goes maybe a little too far. We believe that in some way we don't understand when we receive the bread and wine, along with those earthly elements, we also receive in some miraculous manner the true body and blood of Jesus, just like he says, that he personally comes to us in this supper to restore us and, and renew us. Other traditions reject the idea that anything happens at all. The Reformed traditions, the Anabaptist traditions, so your Presbyterian neighbor, your Baptist or, or non-denominational brother. It's simply beyond the realm of human reason, and so in their traditions, they just reject it. The Lord's Supper in their minds is a memorial meal, but that's all. But think about this. If we rejected everything about God we don't understand, there wouldn't be much left of them to believe in, would there? And we need a God much bigger than just the remnants. 
Now, none of these views is going to keep a believer out of heaven. It's faith in Jesus saves. Unbelief condemns. But there's so much more to be gained and, and to cherished um, by those who reject our more literal view, the, the view of the early church. You know, gifts of God for strength and growth that are offered uh, but, but never received. The last thing to remember about this, this uh, uh, holy meal is that it's a foretaste of the feast to come. That eternal heavenly meal we'll all enjoy one day in the very presence of God himself. This is a meal that points not only backward, but right through the present and forward in time. It looks back and remembers. It looks uh, at the present and receives. It also looks to the future and anticipates. It's the best meal in town for so many reasons. It's food for the soul, purchased by the king. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.